Welcome to Eurodial University with Jeff Snyder. My name is Emil Kalinowski, and today we're going to be talking about the petrodollar, and maybe you may have heard of it, Bretton Woods III, a return to a commodity-based monetary order. We're going to be talking about it by going back into time, way back, 100 years, the 1910s, the 1920s, check writing. We're going to talk about whether or not these things, this Bretton Woods three or a gold-based system makes any sense in the modern world. Jeff, you're going to be leading the discussion. You're going to be helping us understand what happened in the past. Can you give us a, a thesis, a headline summary, and then we'll dive into the details? Well, I think we want to pick up where we left off in a couple previous episodes where we talked about Bretton Woods. We talked about some of the other things, you know, uh, the petrodollar in particular, which was really about misconceptions about what actually happened back in, you know, 50 years ago. Uh, most people believe August 1971, President Nixon said U.S. dollars no longer convertible into gold. A couple of years later, the Saudis had a secret meeting with somebody somewhere and said, we'll sell you our oil in U.S. dollars and we'll buy U.S. treasuries. And so apart from a couple year gap there, we went from a gold-based, a commodity money, gold-based system to a commodity money oil-based system. And as we said before, that just wasn't true. We had long before then transitioned into something called the euro dollar, which was a very different type of system. And analyzing where these mistaken conceptions come from or this mis these misperceptions come from, you really have to go back much further in time than just the 1950s and 60s, all the way back to maybe an even more infamous event in 1933, when Franklin Delano Roosevelt issued his infamous, some people say criminal, Executive Order 6102, which is, I think a lot of people know, a lot of people who know about the, the Bretton Woods system, actually confiscated private stores of gold, confiscated private holdings of commodity money. So even before, decades before we get to the you know 1970s, Already, there was something different here because we were not on a commodity money standard after 6102. We went to a different standard. But what that standard of money was, I think people get wrong because the misperception there from the 1930s was that 6102 unleashed government power, government monopoly. You hear that all the time. Governments have monopoly over money because of this moment in time where they confiscated private holdings of gold. We're going to tell people that we are not in a government-run money system and that this took place well before, God, what was it, the petrodollar, and that even before uh, Franklin Roosevelt's move, we were moving towards something that was much more in the shadows. That's why we only hear about 6102 and we hear about the petrodollar because that's the headline-grabbing news. But behind in the shadows... We were moving as a country and as a world towards a bank-centered, ledger-based money even 100 years ago, even before the Eurodollar system. And you've got some great numbers. We're going to go over that. That's, of course, not to say that what Franklin Roosevelt did was appropriate or legal. or I mean, goodness, it was legal, but immoral, outrageous. Or that it wasn't important, right? Yes, it was a big deal. Yeah, absolutely. We're not saying that at all. But maybe it wasn't a big deal to the monetary system as it was developing. So we'll have to keep those two thoughts in mind. 
not as big a deal and also completely immoral and outrageous behavior. But okay, that's just my bias. The bigger point here, Emil, is that uh, I think we're conditioned to believe in big jumps, big leaps, right? There's a hard event. One system ended and another began. You know, that was the way in the 1933 confiscation of gold. And then another system began. And then eventually Bretton Woods came along. Another hard event that changed things. And then we fast forward to 1971 and another abrupt change. And that's really not the case. What we're trying to say here is that the monetary system, not just in the United States, but globally, had evolved slowly, incrementally over time, always in the background in ways that you probably don't really realize or notice or or pay much conscious attention to that actually explains what happened. So yes, there was abrupt events in 1933 and 1971, but behind those, there was a transition and evolution that had been taking place that goes way, way back in time. We talked about Zoltan Pozar's, the Credit Suisse interest rate strategist's thesis that we're moving now towards a Bretton Woods three, whereby it'll be a reintroduction of commodity-based monetary order or commodity-linked. And he, to his credit, is saying this is not going to happen tomorrow. It's going to be a slow process, which you just said is what we should expect. But your point in this article is that would be going backwards and and counter to a 120-year trend. So that would be incredible if we actually did go towards a commodity-based Bretton Woods 3. Ladies and gentlemen, you can read this article, which we'll be sourcing from, by going to the Real Clear Markets website, looking for Jeffrey P. Snyder, head of global research for Alhambra Investments. Go to April 22nd, 2022, and the title is The Root of the Petrodollar Error is that there is one. Jeff, I'm going to have to talk to you about these titles, but we'll do that off the air. You say it yourself, Executive Order 6102, it hardly dented the nature of America's full and complete monetary system. And you go back to the beginning of the century and you say that the use of hand-to-hand currency, whether in specie, such as silver coin or gold or paper bank notes, tell me if that means notes issued by Wells Fargo or Chemical Chase Morgan Bank or Federal Reserve notes, were they even invented by then? That that was going away. That was not primary. It was not as critical. And I'm going to read a quote here by a Federal Reserve Bank of Atlanta study from 2008. And you tell us what it means. Kinley, who apparently wrote this in 1910, estimates that the contemporary share of checks in business-to-business transactions or wholesale trade was at 90%. The success of the check payment system was all the more remarkable for its decentralization. Each bank was connected to the system only through correspondence of its own choosings. Yeah, I think, you know, we're talking real basic fundamentals here. When you ask people, what is money? They're immediate, most people are immediately going to say it's, you know, physical Federal Reserve notes or back in the day, it's gold coined. It's, it's whatever token you might use to engage in hand to hand transactions, which means you go to a shop or you know, some, some, some sort of seller and you physically give them a token and they give you goods or they provide you with a service. When in fact, as the, you know, the Federal Reserve Bank of Atlanta study was saying, by the early, early 20th century and even the late 19th century, much of that hand-to-hand transaction had been eliminated in a rising, somewhat primitive, but more sophisticated than before banking system 
the emphasis here is on the system, not just the bank, because banks got together and formed these interbank networks called the correspondent network. And one reason they did so was that you could transact in other forms beyond simple hand-to-hand currency. Check writing is a perfect example. Most people are intimately, or at least they used to be, maybe not so much nowadays, but are familiar with the check writing. When you go to a, a grocery store or some form of retail establishment and you write a check, you're not giving them currency. You're not giving them gold. You're not giving them specie. What you're actually doing is you're giving your bank the ability to settle the transaction on your behalf in the way that the bank sees fit. Now, that could be a correspondent relationship with the retail outlets bank, or it could be some other type of relationship where they're settling that transaction through a means that is not hand-to-hand currency. And so the point I'm trying to make here is that by the early 20th century, the world, the United States economy in particular, had already transitioned in a good part away from hand-to-hand currency into some other form of money. So before we ever get to the 1930s, what we're saying is the American monetary system was sort of a hybrid model. It was a hybrid in the fact that you had hand-to-hand currency, you had gold, you had commodity money. That form of private commodity money existed and mostly lower classes and lesser income folks were using silver coins, for example, when more middle class and wealthy Americans and business owners had moved to checks. That was the other part of the hybrid model, which is private bank forms of money, which we know it as, you know, fractional reserve lending. That's a form of depository money. So we had a private monetary model, a private hybrid model that was already changing and moving away from commodity money to private bank money before we got to FDR. And there were other forms of payment processing that were developing at the same time, not just checks, but interbank correspondent relations settlement methods like federal funds. Fedwire came into being at this time. Again, monetary innovation, not gold and silver or actual notes being moved around. But as you put it here, book entries of private ledger money maintained by the banking system. Now, Jeff, I'm going to read out some figures so that the audience can appreciate how by the time we got to the demonetization and confiscation of gold, it wasn't that important. And of course, the whole thesis is if gold wasn't that important to the monetary system, then oil wasn't either, and it likely won't be again now with Bretton Woods III, should anything like that come about. So I'm going to read out some numbers. Jeff, you tell me if I've got all these numbers, and I'm emphasizing the ones correctly. We're going to go back to 1914, and the Federal Reserve reported that its member banks held $730 million worth of vault cash. Tell us what kind of things are in vault cash. Some of it's gold holdings, some of it's silver coins, some of it's uh, actual, you know, at that time, banknotes of other certain certain qualifying assets as well. But any any highly liquid hand-to-hand currency that that, uh, the government deemed acceptable at that time that satisfied reserve requirements was deemed vault, vault cash. Physical things, Federal Reserve notes, bank notes, right. cash, gold, silver. An actual vault with actual cash in it. Okay, so there was 739 million of those. And then there was also 266 million of reserves. Now, these things were not physical. They were ledger-based entries for a very narrow subset of the economy with a narrow set of customers, and it was all Federal Reserve and 
banks that had relationships with the Federal Reserve. Is that correct? Yeah. And the thing about the Fed's bank reserves was that it also satisfied regulatory reserve requirements. So even though it wasn't physical cash, it wasn't a medium of exchange in the outside economy, it did help banks stay in operation, or at least in good standing with the uh, regulatory authorities of the day. So it was helpful in that narrow case. So you had vault cash, physical good, plus these bank reserves, and that is the real money in the system. And uh, well, real. It was becoming, remember, hybrid. There is still hand-to-hand currency. There's still hand-to-hand cash taking place. But over time, we're shifting away from hand-to-hand to this other form of bank money where there's a bank vault and other forms of quote unquote liquidity under, underpinning or supporting this other form of settlement, which is this depository fractional reserve money, which I, you're, you're about to, to give us the numbers on those. Yes, yes. This is, the, this is what's backing real money, actual money in the economy. These things that I just said, it was backing $8.3 billion in deposit liabilities, Jeff, of which $1.9 billion were interbank correspondent liabilities. So in other words, a simple fraction of $8.30 in deposit liabilities for every $1 of cash in bank reserves. Deposits to just the cash, the vault stuff, was a multiplier of 11.2. So already in 1914, it wasn't, what Jeff? It wasn't a commodity-based money. We We had more, what would the word be? What am I trying to say? Yes, the bank, this ledger form of money, this innovation mm. where we're using private bank money. Now, again, that doesn't include the, the, uh, hand to hand, the, the amount of currency that was in circulation with the public. But we're already seeing, in, as, as Emil was just pointing out, in 1914, a substantial amount of private bank money to go yes. along with hand to hand currency. And as we're saying here, with the proliferation of these other forms of payment processing and settlement systems, the hybrid was shifting more and more toward the bank less and less hand-to-hand currency. And again, to reinforce the message, this is the early 1900s. And now we're going to scoop forward to 1929 just to show how, we, how far we moved by 1929 before the financial apocalypse arrived. Okay, now we had only $433 million in vault cash. Jeff, I was shocked. I would have thought that would have increased based on population growth and the expansion of the economy. I would have thought vault cash would have increased to at least maintain that same peg ratio from earlier. Before it was 739 million, 15 years earlier. Now it's about half that, 433 million. And look at this, what did increase by less than a factor of 10, but let's just call it 10, 2.4 billion in bank reserves from 266 million. Let's trust the Fed. Let's use the Fed stuff. <laughs> so so what were banks doing? They said, eh, on the physical gold, silver banknotes, Federal Reserve notes, we'll have this promise. More this ledger stuff, right? On a ledger not with just, the Fed. Not just customer stuff, but even our reserves, even our liquid liabilities are also ledger entries. I mean, that's what I'm saying when I said, you know, the hybrid system shifted more and more away from commodity money and more and more into this. It's not even paper money. It's virtual currency. It's like we've talked about before, this ledger form of fictive currencies, which is, you know, bank centered. And so by the time you get to 1929, I think you can already understand why the Great Depression crisis, the collapse was so bad, because when everybody, the public, 
rushed to convert this funny ledger stuff into physical currency, there wasn't a whole lot of physical currency there. And if the Federal Reserve, which had supplied the vast majority of your quote unquote reserves, isn't in the mood to help you out, what do you do? You're basically screwed, which is why we had so many banks fail, especially in 1930, 31 and 32. Now consider the size of the private bank deposit money balance. In 1929, it was now 35.9 billion. It was previously 8.3. Yeah, huge, huge increase. And now, so our ratio of reserves backing deposit liabilities is now at just under 13, 12.85. But if you look at just the cash, just the physical cash, something physical to back this up, we're at a ratio of, let's call it 83 to 1. Wow, you don't see those numbers even in this silver commodity market, Jeff. <laughs> That's going to make people blush. 82 to 1. And I guess the point is, Jeff, then, how important was the gold in all of this? It seems like it wasn't very important at all. So, hmm. So what, you know, yeah, what FDR was saying is that, look, we moved, if we remove private, uh, private holdings of gold or private ability to use specie as a method of payment, then we won't have this problem where the public will hoard gold or remove it from the banking system, thereby leading to this type of crash. When that has been misinterpreted as the government uh, asserting itself and its authority by saying we're no longer going to have any private money at all. Not only are we going to remove gold, we're going to replace it with these Federal Reserve notes. So even paper currency is going to be government currency. And that at the base of every monetary pyramid, you're going to have government, 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 government. While that may be true in a sense, it didn't eliminate these ledger forms of money. And in fact, those are what proliferated throughout the Great Depression and, and forward. So what actually happened in the 1930s is that 6102, in some sense, actually contributed more or actually amplified this hybrid evolution or the evolution away from the hybrid model toward what eventually became the euro dollar model. Because you can think, you're a banker in 1929, and you think, you know, having all these liquid reserves, this is a pain in the butt because customers could come in and take those reserves away from us. And unless we have a good central bank that knows what the hell they're doing with bank reserves, we're kind of vulnerable here. So maybe instead of having that type of system, why don't we just eliminate the reserves entirely? And so between 1933 and 1955, that's basically what the banking system worked toward. They worked toward a reserveless system, which was entirely private bank money rather than any government money. So 6102 didn't establish government money it actually contributed toward moving from private commodity money to private bank money. So that's what the transition has been from the 19th century to the middle 20th century, was we went from a hybrid private commodity money, private bank money, to almost entirely private bank money. It wasn't the government establishing its monetary authority, it was actually the government getting the hell out of the way for banks to be able to do this. And this is really the point of the story that we mentioned at the outset of our, our Bretton Woods 3 episode not long ago with George L. Harrison and the bank saying, you want us to depend upon you for liquidity? Sorry, pal, that ain't happening. The point of that story was this transition away from, from the hybrid system to a more exclusive private bank money system that eventually became the euro dollar. 
And in this article, you talk about 1937 and you talk about George L. Harrison. Again, I bring up the L because people complained that we were talking about the Beatles in the comment <laughs> section on YouTube. And you talk about that in that article. We won't go over it now. But basically, you summarize it all at the very end regarding our present day circumstances in a potential Bretton Woods 3 and commodity based money, that this would be counter to over a century of evolution, movement, desire by the private banking system through several monetary eras that we're you know, moving towards. Go one ahead. One last, you know, I just say, Emil, it's not just, let's, let's also be clear. It's not just the banking system that wanted to do this. The public, the banks were yes, actually meeting public you. demand. So go back thank to you. check writing in the early 19th century. The public didn't want to use hand-to-hand -hand currency. If they did, they would continue to do so. Instead, they wanted more e easier forms of payments because the best monetary system is the one you don't even have to think about. If I could just go to the store and tap my phone on the little thingy, that's the best monetary system, at least as far as the public is concerned. It gets a little messy in power, uh, when we get into intermediation and money creation functions, but from the demand of the public and the demand of the real economy at large, again, 1910, it was the wholesale economy that, that uh, led the way in transitioning toward ledger in book entries and checks. It's the commercial part of the economy that wants these easier forms of payments. It's not just banks who are deciding we want to do this because we're going to do it. Jeff, I'm going to ask the audience for a favor in the YouTube comments section. If they know anything about the following subject, if they could leave me a note, because I've been trying to research this subject for a while and I don't have a straight answer, especially for our Australian friends. I have a list here of confiscations, restrictions on gold ownership that has taken place around the world since the uh, Great Depression. And I've got here Australia, 1929. It was an amendment to the Commonwealth Bank Act. United States, 1933. Everyone knows about that. Australia, again, 1959. Again, that same banking act. United States, 1962. United Kingdom, 1967. India, 1968. Jeff, I know what you're here thinking as you're hearing these 60s dates. But the question I have from my Australian friends is, I don't quite have enough information on those Australian acts. It was passed, but was it actually acted upon? Was the gold confiscated? Was it restricted? What actually happened in 1929 and 1959? I've never gotten a straight answer. If you could let us know, that would be super. Thanks, Jeff. All right, take care.